Hi, it's Robin LaRose. The Woodstock Music and Arts Festival, as it was originally billed, it's three days of music and art, August 15, 16, and 17, 1969. took place on Max Yasker's Dairy Farm, just outside of Bethel, New York. Over 500,000 people showed up. Controlled chaos would be one way to describe it. Controlled and uncontrolled chaos. Fences to hold the crowd in and out weren't finished. Ticket booths to take and distribute concert tickets weren't completed. The stage and sound system wasn't done. Traffic into the site came to a standstill. My Miles and miles of cars jammed together, parked on the New York State Thruway, various throughways, as a matter of fact. Even performers couldn't get into the site, except for a few who came early to beat the crowds, like Richie Havens, who was coerced into going on stage first on that Friday afternoon. And he was magnificent. And then came Country Joe McDonald. And there was no other performers to put on. Uh, I was going to, uh, I was scheduled to play with. Country Joe and the Fish, the rock band, on Sunday, and I, I just came Friday just to watch the show. It was scheduled as an acoustic folk music day, and they told me that they needed me to fill in some time and play, and, and just uh, found a guitar and pushed me out there and, and had me sing solo. I, I had no intention of doing such a thing, and, and I didn't know it was being filmed, and so <laughs> one thing led to another. It, it, because the audience was largely drawn from from the uh, Manhattan area, uh-huh. and Country John the Fish had, had had invented, had played Manhattan quite a few times, and Fixing the Die Rag was well known there, and we had invented the sculpture at Central Park uh, about a year before, so the audience knew the... Give me an F! ...cheer, and, and they knew the song, so... So when I did that, they they really responded. Give me a you. You know the things I did before that moment, the audience didn't really re- respond to. But when I did that, they really responded, and it was a kind of a uh, definitely an electric defining moment. Give me a C. Give me a K. In the record, in the sequencing of the record and the movie, I'm put in the middle. But I wasn't I wasn't in the middle actually. I was you know, the second thing on. The second thing on stage after Richie, and uh, kind of really jump started and kicked the whole uh, thing, the whole festival uh, with the up cheer and fixing the die rag, people singing along, and yeah. it gave a uh, kind of a uniting because we all had the Vietnam War on our minds. This originally started as the fish cheer. I know the story. Some of my listeners probably don't. Give me an F. Give me an I. Give me an S. Give me an H. And then it changed to. That was just kind of a sequence. I mean, the, the strange thing when I think about it is that I put the fish chair on there in the first place. But I used to do that in high school. I was in a high school band, and we would spell out the name of the of the sports team. So I got the idea to spell out fish because we were called Country John the Fish on the record, and we spelled out fish and then sang Fixie and Die Rag. And then uh, the drummer, uh, Chicken Hirsch, got the idea that we would change just for fun, you know, uh, and because uh, it began with F and it was four letters, and, and we did it. it quite uh, even today, it's the the word "nickel" in America is is quite shocking, and, and you know, the yeah, how strange. FCC, has, I think, it now costs you about two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine on the radio if you say it. Yeah, if you say it, it really is taboo, and and, and at that particular time in in 1969, it was mind-blowing. That's that spell! That's that spell! 
The Jefferson Airplane from San Francisco took the stage at Woodstock at 8 a.m. Sunday morning on day three of the festival, right after the Who's performance. Grace Slick, the airplane's lead singer, grabbed the mic. All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups. Now you will see morning maniac music. Believe me, yeah. I spoke with Grace about that Woodstock experience. Well, Woodstock... There are a lot of people who don't mind when they're in their 20s rolling around in the mud and everything and not being able to get to a bathroom. I do. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge Jap, and uh, I would not have gone for that as an audience at all. I mean, I really appreciate the fact that the kids did that. My idea of a good festival is Monterey Pop, where the weather's good. You can get to a, a bathroom that's not disgusting within at least four minutes. All of the stuff that was sold there was handmade. We got to see people we had never seen because that we were all kind of new at it mm-hmm. so we'd heard each other's records saw Ravi Shankar for the first time the who for the first time Jimi Hendrix for the first time I mean it was just you know this amazing um, grouping of people and it was very well organized now behind the scenes I've heard subsequently uh, that there were a lot of hassles as far as production goes as far as out front and as far as we were concerned it was fabulous The road to Woodstock for Janis Joplin, who was at the time a a huge rising star in rock, cutting her chops with Big Brother and the Holding Company out of San Francisco. The album Cheap Thrills had just come out. Peace of My Heart was getting played on just about every underground FM rock station from coast to coast. And then she made a surprise move. She quit the band. Big Brother guitarist, the late Sam Andrews, who passed away at 73 in 2015, spoke to me about his experiences with Big Brother and Janis Joplin and why she quit the group right before Woodstock. Well, that's a good question, Robin. That's a really good question. Um, I, she was just becoming restless. Uh, there were a couple of people in Big Brother in the original band who... You know, they kind of did not have a work ethic. You know, they were just real happy to be there where they were, you know, on the brink of stardom. And, uh, you know, they were just happy to be They were amazed to be there. And it it was not real important to them that they do any more work. You know, they thought, oh, we've arrived and everything's okay now. And it was just, it was a hard time. You know, Janice wanted everyone to work a little more, maybe to create, uh, you know, a next identity or to continue on with this. And it wasn't forthcoming in that band, you know. And so she thought, you know, who knows, aided by Albert Grossman or not aided by Gross. Albert Grossman, but she just felt like she should move on, and she talk, we talked about that a lot in you know her motel room when we were traveling mm-hmm. with all these places, and so I don't know. Very smart of you to uh, jump on board and go in the Cosmic Blues Band and and uh, Woodstock. Well, I I went on with Janice. And she brought all of these Canadians in the band. And who knows why that would happen. Maybe because they were real intelligent and very intellectual and really talented. Uh, Many of them came out of the Ronnie Hawkins band, and many of them Albert Grossman had managed before. Mm -hmm. 
So all of a sudden, we met all these Canadian people like Brad Campbell, who played in a band called The Poppers, and John Till. And Janis Joplin asked me, hey, do you want to do Woodstock with us? And I said, I just have to go back to California. Since you fired me, because she fired me from Cosmic Blues Band, because it, I, you know, it was just, it wasn't working. Yeah. And uh, so I said, go ahead with that band. And she said, do you want to come to Woodstock? And I said, no, I'm going to go and get Big Brother together. So I didn't play Woodstock. So to this day, I regret it. I wished I would have. But my old friend Barry Melton from Country Joe and the Fish, when he's talking to someone and they come up to him after he's played a set, and they go, wasn't Woodstock great? And he, then he says, I know they weren't there because it was really muddy and disorganized and, you know, all. But still, I wish I would have done it so I could say I did Monterey and Woodstock, but I didn't. One of the highlights of the Woodstock Festival was the appearance of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, their second concert ever as a quartet. That was Woodstock. Most people to uh, this day, I think, it was just see us in at Woodstock because Neil Young decided against being in that movie that came out afterwards. But it was the four of them. CSNY, of course, immortalized the song Woodstock a year later with a cover version of uh, Joni Mitchell's song. She didn't even make the festival. Here's Graham Nash. Joni and I would do together as boyfriend and girlfriend at the time, and uh, we were staying at, um, in, in a hotel in New York, and... Uh, the four of us, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, went off to play Woodstock. And Joni was supposed to play Woodstock, too. But David Geffen and, uh, and Elliot Roberts, who uh, managed Joni at the time, decided that uh, uh, the importance of Joni doing the Dick Cavett show, which was her first major television show uh, in America, um, was not lost on them. And they figured that if she, couldn't, if she blew it and couldn't get out of Woodstock, she would blow a very important television show. So... They uh, made the decision, rightly or wrongly, to, to keep Joni in New York. Very early Sunday morning, day three of Woodstock, around 3.30 in the morning, on came Sly and the Family Stone. Outside of Jimi Hendrix's performance, this was the most electrifying set of the entire weekend. The Family Stone were funk rock pioneers based in San Francisco, the first interracial, multi-gender American band to come along in the late 60s. Jerry Martini was a musical prodigy. At the age of five, learned how to play the ukulele. By the age of 10, he's playing the accordion. At 12, the clarinet. And at 13, the sax. And by the time he was 15, he was playing in bars. By the age of 24, he met Sly Stone at radio station KSOL, where Sly was working as a DJ. Jerry suggested to Sly they form a band, and they did in 1967. Two years later, Sly and the Family Stone played Woodstock. I spoke to Jerry about the road to Woodstock. In the very beginning, we were not accepted uh, by Bill Graham. He thought we were a little bit, a little bit too radical to put in the Fillmore in the beginning. So we moved to New York, and uh, why? Just because it was well, an interracial band? Our clothes, our, our uh, the way we dressed, uh, the fact that we were uh, mixed racially, and we had the whole front line was well, women and men, and not the usual, say, like a uh, male lead singer with with. Uh, four African-American backup singers, you know. It was like a, 
it was an equal participation band, and it was it was really different. And we had already had our little cult following in in San Francisco Bay Area, but when we went to New York, right about the time Dance and the Music hit in nineteen in nineteen sixty eight, yeah. and we were playing at a place called the Electric Circus, which was the really happening place on East Eighth in New York, and. We were like, they absolutely, New York embraced us. So then uh, Bill Graham pretty much had no choice but to book us at the Fillmore East, which, <laughs> and then after that, of course, the Fillmore West when we came back home. But, and from that point on, from 1968, and uh, so our first album, was too diverse. It didn't have a, a really a basic motive, you know, like how a symphony does. Mm-hmm. And dancing and music opened up all the doors, and of course, then the Newport Jazz Festival in Woodstock the following year just opened it all up. What was it like for you? It, it was amazing. Uh, we didn't think it was going to be that big. It was just another outdoor concert, you know, to be compared, like with uh, Newport Jazz Festival and stuff like that. And when we got there, we said, "Oh my God!" And and it rained that first day. We were walking around in the mud. Yeah. It was a dirty mess. But it was amazing because I didn't see anybody fighting or arguing. There was no... When they had the repeat Woodstock performance, it's what we jokingly called Woodstockade, <laughs> one of them. It was... I mean, people were fighting and they lit fires. And but at this, it was, it was indeed uh, Love City, which was... That was the name of the a song that we played out for our second encore. It was half a million people getting along and really getting down, you know? Celebrating the 50th anniversary of this incredible, fantastical, and legendary music festival held on Max Yasker's Dairy Farm. Five decades ago, Half a million people listening to music and having fun. And nothing but music and having fun. I'm Robin LaRose.